Yeah, on the desk that I'm sitting at right now, everything smells so bloody wonderful because my girlfriend had uh, her birthday recently. And for some reason, everybody feels like we are old enough to bring us flowers to our birthdays. This wasn't a thing five years ago. And now this whole table, because obviously <laughs> she's going to use my work table to put all her flowers. And it, like, it smells like three different types of botanical gardens. But <laughs> me being uh, a genetically uh, weak-ass boy uh, with many allergies, if I start randomly sneezing the shit out of my nose uh, at some point ah. of the episode uh, Hakim I do not have a cold it's the it's the flowers <laughs> it's, it's perfectly fine it's perfectly fine don't worry although I am disappointed Allergies. by your genetic inferiority I'm <laughs> 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 Hello and welcome to yet another episode of The Deep Program. This week we've got a very special guest a lot of you guys probably have heard of, Benjamin Norton or Ben Norton. He's an excellent journalist, editor and founder over at Multipolarista and, if I may say so myself, a true through and through anti-imperialist. His work on covering world events while preserving a principled socialist stance speaks for itself. He's been doing it for quite a while now and his contribution both to socialism and non-corporate journalism is undeniable. We're very happy to have you on the show this morning, night, or afternoon, depending on where our listeners are at right now, Ben. So please do tell everyone who's with us today a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for the generous introduction. You, you covered it pretty well. I'll just say that I'm a journalist and I'm also an anti-imperialist and a socialist and I'm not in any way... Uh, you know, ambivalent about that. I don't hide that. I think more journalists should be pretty clear about their politics. Unfortunately, there's this kind of bourgeois tradition of claiming to be neutral or whatever, which is nonsense. There's no such thing as neutrality. I mean, there is factuality. You can be factual, but you're always, you know, you can't be neutral on a moving train, as Howard Zinn said, and you're always situating your, your journalistic work in a political context. So I, I see journalism as part of a larger social movement, for socialism against imperialism. And I have been a journalist now for over 10 years. And I recently, in, at the beginning of 2022, I created this new project, this new website, Multipolarista, which is in Spanish and English. A lot of it's in English, but I live in Latin America. So I also do coverage in Spanish and I try to translate a lot of my articles. And then I also do videos and I have a podcast and it's all under multipolarista. So if people are interested in anti-imperialism and especially the kind of documenting this historical transition we're living in in the world right now with the collapse of U.S. unipolar hegemony, the decline of U.S. imperialism, the rise of several different poles, the rise of the left in Latin America, the rise of the People's Republic of China, and the new Cold War, those are all issues that I cover a lot. So I think, you know, I've, I've checked out some of your past episodes. I think it's going to be a good discussion today. I'm looking forward to it. Well, glad to hear it. Uh, on the point uh, on the point of, um, uh, quote unquote, non-biased uh, media, we completely agree. That's why we, we tried to get most of our information from CBS. <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> a stupid point. No, but I'm, I'm just, uh, that's uh, very, very nicely put about the very fact that, uh, yeah, uh, most media, particularly journalistic work, isn't uh, as, as, as non-biased as they claim. Despite the fact that this is almost, I think, purely an American phenomenon. The rest of the world doesn't have this. 
So I thought uh, we could probably just get your quick thoughts on that before we jump into to the meat of it. Why do you think the United States has this fascination with uh, uh, media that they claim is non-biased, that there is such a thing as objective truth? That's a great point. I mean, historically, most newspapers and media outlets have been associated with a particular political party or a political movement. In the U.S., I mean, of course, all corporate media outlets are affiliated with the U.S. government, basically, and it, the two factions of the one-party dictatorship, the Democrats and Republicans, but they're all pretty much indistinguishable. I think the reason that the U.S. media uses this idea of neutrality, it weaponizes it, is because it is a way for bourgeois democracy and for imperialism to portray itself as, as neutral, right? That, that's the whole point of imperialism, and that's the whole point of bourgeois ideology, is that it wants to make itself invisible. It wants to make it seem like the natural state of the world, and if you challenge imperialism and you challenge capitalism, you're seen as fringe, whereas if you support imperialism and support capitalism, it's not even seen as doing an action. It's just like breathing air. So... That's exactly how the media is weaponized. It spreads all of this propaganda on behalf of the U.S. national security state, the U.S. military, the empire, the capitalist class, the billionaire oligarchs that run society. And then anything that challenges that is seen as fringe and anything that reinforces that is seen as neutral. Brilliantly and of put. course, that's why we see the very common... Uh, sorry, you got me, I cut you off. No, brilliantly put. We In our last episode, it's going to come out everywhere by the time this one uh, has uh, come out as well. We touched on that very extensively, how for some reason existing in capitalism and understanding capitalism as uh, the natural state of being is the only non-ideological action which you can take. Everything else, combating it uh, in any way, be it physically or verbally, is seen, as you put it very well, as fringe and uh, anti-systematic and quote-unquote uh, violent and unobjective. And that must be extremely stressful, especially for a journalist where everybody's walking around flabbing their hands fucking saying that they, uh, they reinvent the wheel on how to be unbiased and actually look at things from all sides, which at the end of the day, as we all know very well, uh, all our actions, including all industries, which also include journalism, obviously, are informed by ideology. And therefore, the only true, uh, we said this 50 times on the D program, but let's say it again, uh, like the only true way to convene uh, information in the least manipulative way is to from the get-go, openly state where you're coming from and what your biases and what your ideology, therefore, is in the first place. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's really important to keep in mind that it, this is completely reinforced hegemonically in culture. And this made me think of this this slogan that, you know, a lot of people have repeated. It's it's it, It's not really known who said it first, but it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. It's sometimes attributed to Zizek, but I actually heard other people say it before Zizek. So anyway, whatever the point is, though, I mean, this is so reinforced in the media and not just like the news media, but also in general, the media, like cultural production, movies, TV shows. How many stupid dystopian TV shows and movies are there where it's just like it's this crazy dystopian society? It's like the end of the world, but it's still like this ultra capitalism because people can't imagine anything else other than that. It's just it's completely hegemonically reinforced everywhere, not even just in like the news, but in our culture, in the way we interact with society. And that's why bourgeois democracy is 
like this dictatorship where you can't break out of this hegemonic ideology. The idea that bourgeois democracy is democratic is absurd when you keep that perspective in mind. Exactly. Very, very apt point, I think, and beautifully put. Uh, and this also kind of reinforces two things. I think it was Mark Fisher that said uh, um, it's easier to imagine the the, the uh, uh, end of the world than the end of yeah, capitalism. capitalist realism, um, right? But exactly right, yeah. Um, but also the point with with the, um, this reinforcement, uh, of course, of imperial imperialist foreign pol for foreign policy, excuse me, um, as well as whatever basically the U.S. Uh, State Department uh, is currently hoping for. Um, the the most interesting. Uh, I think expression of this on a day-to-day -day basis is if ever you were to try to, you know, um, send somebody some sort of information, no matter on what, no matter how benign of a topic it is. If you were to send them, for example, an article from the New York Times, they won't bat an eye. But if, it, if it's going to be from like CGTN or, you know, like any other, uh, you know, or like a Telesur or something else that is basically something they're not familiar with, let alone it being uh, with a specific uh, right or left uh, wing bend, uh, then immediately, you know, the alarm bells go off in their head. But when you give them this sort of exposure to other sorts of media uh, with with blatant uh, pro-American or pro-capitalist uh, messaging, they don't even sense it. And I think that's very interesting how, you know, we're so steep in ideology that at uh, some point people even stop perceiving the fact that they are within, uh, within ideology. Um, but very, very, very beautifully put that. Too. Yeah. And, and when the U.S. is the global hegemon, I mean, still in some ways, although we'll talk about the decline of unipolarity, but especially when it comes to cultural imperialism, the U.S. exports its garbage culture around the world. I mean, there's, there is really good culture in the U.S., to be fair. Like, you know, uh, the, there, so much music <laughs> and so many great movies. You know, jazz, hip-hop, rock, metal. Like, there's so much great, good stuff. But, I mean, I'm talking about, like, garbage Hollywood movies, just, just dog shit movies. And if you look at the way, you know, these movies are consumed around the world and they always reinforce this ideology. So, for instance, like this obsession in the past decade with awful superhero movies in all of those movies, the U.S. military is on the side of the the, the so-called good guys. And in Black Panther, a fucking white CIA agent is yeah. teams up <laughs> with the with like the the monarch to fight against like a Black Panther style revolutionary. I mean, and these movies are seen everywhere in the world in like dozens of languages. And think about like what kind of ideology is imbued in that propaganda. I mean, I think Hakim and, and we can say it, we, a lot of ideology is imbued in that propaganda. It works really, really, really well. Uh, mm. and I yeah. think Hakim can mm. agree. Even when we felt the boot of Western imperialism, you you know have a negative outlook towards the state, but you still somehow uh, reproduce the feeling of uh, what word should I use of inadequacy as compared to the incredible American lifestyle, which you only know from uh, films usually shot in New York, Chicago, or L.A. Even though, and then you go to those cities and you're like, oh my fucking god, this is not like in the films. But yes, in general, uh, it's not only actual boots on the ground imperialism, but cultural imperialism, which uh, kind of uh, establishes uh, itself not only in local industry and the local economy, but also in the minds of the local working class, which then reproduces that as an idea that uh, you know it, it is something that ca they can potentially reproduce in their own country. But we all know, and we'll talk about it later, that is kind of impossible when you have a unipolar world with one particular state hoarding basically all the wealth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Hakim, you wanted to say something? 
Uh, I just I just had a one small comment. It's uh, when you mentioned the the culture and there are good aspects of the culture. You hesitated for just half a second. <laughs> I found that so funny because to me it sounded like you said good culture and then you couldn't think of. Well, it. no, I mean, but no, of course, of course, the U.S. has a lot of. good I didn't culture, want to like but, make uh, it a whole thing. Like I'm a huge metal fan and there's a lot of good music from the U.S. But like especially when it comes yeah, to sure. movies, which are much more ideological mm. than music, often. I mean, the the film industry in the U.S. is so inextricably tied to the CIA and the Pentagon. And there, there are people who have done good research on this, showing how hundreds of Hollywood blockbuster movies and thousands of TV shows have been produced with the help and the oversight of the U.S. national security state, of the CIA, of the Pentagon, of the FBI. And, you know, that that culture is exported around the world. So, I mean... There is also shitty music ideologically, but then there's also, I mean, I'm a musician, so I have a soft spot for music, but especially when it comes to movies, it's just pure propaganda. Well, I'll I'll say another quick point here, but on on the note of music, it's also worth noting that many musical genres and like a lot of the, the greatest musicians in the history of the U.S. are from marginalized communities and oppressed nations, so you know, especially the black community, which obviously has been, you know, a victim of so much oppression by the U.S. government, but also, you know, uh, Jewish Americans, Latinos, like a a lot of that music is the product actually of oppressed nations within the U.S. So it's it's also important to point out, like a lot of that good art has its origins in resisting U.S. uh, imperialism and capitalism. Very important to note. Absolutely. Uh, and and speaking of uh, balance between the the powerful and the quote unquote downtrodden, uh, only two days ago, before the recording of this episode, uh, President Andres of Mexico denounced for a consecutive time, by the way, the U.S. blockade of Cuba, which for those who for some reason don't know, has been going on for sixty plus years. He called it a type of quote-unquote, genocide and a tremendous violation of human rights. Uh, I know that guessing the future is tricky, to say the least, but also, let's be honest, extremely fun to do. So, Ben, to kind of start off with a relatively difficult one, uh, what do you think, through your expert perspective, are we going to see a strong shift of South America from U.S. dominance, or should we doomerishly, uh, doomerishly expect any rhetoric of this sort to be ruthlessly crushed? Well, it's a complicated question. I think, first of all, I like the way you started with this statement by Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador. And he's known popularly as AMLO, A-M-L-O, which is the acronym of his name. And he, these comments that he made are extremely important and we need to keep them in context in order to understand the full answer to your question because just a decade ago Mexico was still dominated by a series of neoliberal governments that basically acted as extensions of US imperialism and it wasn't until 2018 that AMLO came in he had he had won the previous election in 2012 but it was blatantly stolen from him the hacker who stole the election was He later admitted it and was later imprisoned. He was a Colombian hacker. So, I mean, it was a blatant election theft backed by the U.S. that that installed this this neoliberal government led by a previous president named Enrique Peña Nieto, 
who privatized the oil industry, which had been incorporated into Mexico's revolutionary constitution after the Mexican Revolution of the 1910s. So, I mean, Mexico is in some ways kind of colonized by the U.S. and in this kind of neo-colonial framework where it's not full-on U.S. troops, but it's, you know, neo-colonialism as Nkrumah understood it. And anyway, the point is that, that AMLO came in on this wave of popular discontent and social movements, and he's not a socialist. He's, he's a progressive nationalist, center-left, social democratic, but he has an independent foreign policy, and he has an independent national policy. He renationalized the oil industry, and he, re-national, and he, he nationalized lithium, and is now creating a state-owned lithium company in Mexico. So the reason I talk about that history is because it shows that even in countries that have for many decades been subordinated by U.S. imperialism, and even presidents who are not necessarily revolutionary like Hugo Chavez was in Venezuela, even these more social democratic center-left nationalists are taking a more independent approach. And even this southern neighbor of the U.S., has been calling for the end to the criminal, illegal U.S. blockade on Cuba. I should also mention that every single year at the United Nations, for over 20 years, almost every country on Earth has voted against the illegal U.S. blockade at the United Nations. There are 193 member states of the United Nations, and basically every single year, 189, 190 countries, almost all of them vote against the blockade, excluding the U.S. and apartheid Israel. And recently, recently the, uh, the far-right regime of Bolsonaro in Brazil and the narco regime in, in Colombia, and then in also recently Ukraine, the puppet regime in Ukraine. But excluding those puppet regimes, I mean, everyone votes against the blockade. So now we're even seeing countries that had been major U.S. allies criticize that U.S. policy. And AMLO gave a speech in which he said that it amounts to a type of genocide. And when AMLO said that, he said that on June 7th, which was during the opening of the U.S. so-called Summit of the Americas, which is another symbol of this decline of U.S. hegemony. The Summit of the Americas to summarize it very briefly, goes back to 1994. This was the after the overthrow of the Soviet Union in the Eastern Bloc. This is after the end of the first Cold War. And the U.S. government declares, you know, the end of history, as that sophist Francis Fukuyama said, bourgeois democracy, capitalism is the end of history. And Bill Clinton, that same year, 1994, he drafts NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, which devastated Mexico's economy. And then that same year, he brought the countries in Latin America together for a summit of the Americas to try to push through a neoliberal trade agreement for all of the Americas. So in, in the span, in almost 30 years, from 1994 until now, we've seen a massive reversal in Latin America, the rise of leftist forces. And now we see that this week, today is June 9th, Right now in Los Angeles, California, there's a summit going on organized by the U.S. government, and basically half of the region is not attending, their leaders at least. The presidents of Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador are not attending. Also, Mexico, the president AMLO, 
he is not attending. So we're talking about a massive shift just in the span of the past 20 years. And I think that really reflects a larger international shift. I think we're going to talk today about the decline of U.S. hegemony and the rise of this kind of multipolar world. And I think Latin America is a really exciting example of that. Excellently put. Uh, I'm going to be saying that av after every single thing uh, that you say. <laughs> I do it the same with JT and Hakim. <laughs> it's kind of a small tradition here, but uh, because it almost always is. Uh, but to me, just the, the, the symbolic nature of Mexico, the only one, the one out of two countries that the U.S. realistically uh, neighbors with, if we don't count Russia and Alaska up there, uh, is refusing to go to the summit, which indirectly is a sort of allegorical representation of uh, coming and kissing the hand, basically. You go in order for you to say our current government is in line with the policies uh, that the U.S. wants to enact on our part of the continent, basically. And the neighboring state uh, not doing it is, is such a powerful message that uh, hopefully rallies uh, other countries that are further south that did go, uh, go there because it, it, it's kind of showing that the one that is closest to the U.S. has the audacity to uh, not fall in line the way it has for so many years. So hopefully it works as kind of a, uh, a little forest fire and, and spreads uh, everywhere else. Yeah, well, it already has. I mean, I mentioned again, just because I want to stress this point, Mexico, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, their presidents are refusing to attend this U.S. government-organized summit. So the people who are attending are the fascist leader of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, the far-right narco-dictator of Colombia, Ivan Duque, who stole the election with drug money, and the right-wing millionaire oligarch banker president of Ecuador, along with another interesting example, is this new millennial 36-year-old sock dem in Chile, who, by the way, used to be an anarchist, and now he's just like a pro-imperialist sock dem. So he joined all the right wing because he hates Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, and he's trying to get the U.S. to support him. But, I mean, excluding him, it's a bunch of, like, right wing authoritarians. And this is what the U.S. claims. These are the countries the U.S. claims are defending the rules-based order, of course, in which the U.S. makes the rules and orders everyone around, as I often say. Ben, you basically answered my next question, but still, let's round it out for our audience, uh, which comes from all parts of the world, and maybe some of them are not as informed of, on the intricacies of South America to the same level as you are. So could you give us a sort of uh, rundown of uh, which states uh, you believe are seen as uh, hardcore loyalists uh, to U.S. hegemony and uh, which outside of the obvious, you know, Bolivia and Venezuela are uh, slowly starting to back away from Western-oriented policy. So you already kind of answered this question, but tell us who, who, which states, even though this is a sort of realpolitik silly way of, of analyzing whole regions, but still let's do it for, for the sake of uh, simplicity, which states do you see in South America as uh, being the ones that are going to 
for which it's going to take a lot to be taken out of uh, out of uh, you know the the self identity that they are pro US states. Well, this is an interesting question because we have to analyze it in a few different ways: the political situation, but also the economic situation. I should say that there are these contradictions. You know, we have to understand these things dialectically. For instance, Venezuela, until the U.S. full-on blockade, had exported a lot of its oil to the U.S., and now the U.S. has is boycotting all Russian energy. So that's one of the reasons that it's trying to get. Venezuelan oil and basically the US empire made this calculation that in the short term the war on Russia is more important than the war in Venezuela so it's temporarily easing the war on Venezuela to to accelerate the war on Russia although that doesn't mean that it's ending the war in Venezuela but anyway the point I'm saying is that even at the height of Hugo Chavez when he was in power before he which would be from 1999 until he died in 2013 Venezuela still did a lot of trade with the United States so it shows that even within this capitalist system, although this is changing, it is a global system. And these countries that have anti-imperialist and socialist governments are still forced on the international stage to operate within a global capitalist market. So another example of this is Nicaragua. Nicaragua has a socialist government led by the, the Sandinistas and President Daniel Ortega, who you know is an armed revolutionary, a guerrilla who overthrew a U.S. puppet dictatorship. And they have a very revolutionary foreign policy in support of anti-imperialist movements around the world. They have extremely negative relations with the U.S., basically no relations. And the U.S. has brutal sanctions on Nicaragua. But despite that, Nicaragua still exports some of its top products to the U.S. The top, the top destination for the export of Nicaraguan goods is the United States. So capitalism is complicated, right? But when you look at the political situation in Latin America, obviously Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela are the kind of leaders the, of the revolutionary socialist movements. The U.S. Uh, government, the Donald Trump administration, specifically his neoconservative national security advisor, John Bolton, who you know is a war criminal architect of the Iraq war, he dubbed those three countries the so-called Troika of Tyranny, in reality, they're the troika of resistance. And so that's obvious. But then beyond them, Bolivia also has a socialist government. It was previously led by Evo Morales, but now it's led by Luis Arce. And Bolivia is also part of this economic alliance with Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, and also with some countries in the Caribbean, which is called the ALBA, which is the Bolivarian Alliance for, our for the peoples of our America. And the ALBA is an extremely important alliance that was created by Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro in 2004 as, an, as a way to get around the region's reliance on the U.S. economy. So that's why I began this answer talking about this, an, this analysis of the politics, but also the economics, because Latin America is still economically in many ways subordinated. So th this is why we have to have analysis of neocolonialism and understand it and the way Nkrumah meant it, because, you know, Nkrumah understood that, you know, Uganda, where he was in, in other countries in, in many countries in Africa, obviously South, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Angola, um, Algeria. There were all these revolutionary movements that succeeded in overthrowing the colonial regime. But 
then their economies were still controlled by the former colonizers. In, in the case of West Africa, uh, a, a huge part of West Africa still has its currency dominated by France, and they have to hold half of their central reserves, central bank's reserves, in the French central bank. So the point is that in Latin America, economically, there's a similar system where, you know, you can have, you can overthrow a U.S. puppet regime and have a, a progressive or even socialist government, but economically, in your, your economy is still probably going to be subordinated to the U.S., you're going to have to export your goods to U.S. markets. This is how we. This is an, a scientific understanding of how imperialism works within a, the world, the global capitalist system, which is a world system, in which countries that even though they have socialist governments, they're still part of the periphery, and they still export their raw materials to the imperial core, and then the imperial core exports capital and consumer goods to the periphery. So, I mean, it, you have to understand that. You can have a revolutionary government within that system, but you still, that doesn't mean that you are not no longer in the periphery, right? And so anyway, the point is that um, also in Latin America, to answer your question, you know, Mexico is a great example of this. Mexico's top trading partner is the United States, but Mexico now has a center-left government, progressive government. It could go in different ways, but... It's, I think it reflects this kind of history of Mexico's non-aligned role. And in the 1960s, especially in the 60s and 70s, Mexico played this role of like kind of trying to balance the U.S. with the Soviet Union. And it obviously leaned more toward the U.S., but it played a more positive role in the region. And then you can look at other countries. So Colombia, I mean, Hugo Chavez referred to Colombia as the Israel of Latin America. It's basically a puppet regime. It has multiple U.S. military bases. The narco oligarchy steals the elections on behalf of the right wing. And then you can look at, in Central America, you, in Honduras, you now have a left-wing government that is, it's in a very precarious situation because the U.S. backed a coup in 2009. It's currently led by uh, Samara Castro, who is the wife of the former president, Manuel Zelaya, who was overthrown in the U.S.-backed coup. So while they have a left-wing, even socialist-oriented government, they are dealing with the threat of another U.S.-backed coup. They're also dealing with the, the fact that they have massive, odious debt that is more than 100% of GDP, and that's denominated in dollars, and obviously they can't print dollars. So anyway, the point is that, I mean, in a lot of these countries, even if a left-wing government comes to power, you have to deal with the reality of imperialism. This is another example in Peru. Peru had this historic election in which the people voted for a socialist, Pedro Castillo, who is from a party that actually calls itself Marxist-Leninist. It's called Peru Libre, which means free Peru. And he hasn't been able to do anything. One, because he doesn't have a majority in the Congress. He has a small minority, which prevents any legislation from passing. And two, because his state security services are controlled by the U.S., basically, and he had an anti-imperialist foreign minister, and two weeks into his presidency, the foreign minister was forced to resign by the military. So, again, you know, we have to understand, like, the contradictions of all of these processes. Finally, I'll say that Argentina has a very center, center-left government, social democratic at best, 
And it also has more than $40 billion of odious debt from the IMF. So even if the Argentine people voted for a socialist, they would be dealing with the fact that they have this massive odious debt that, that ties their hands behind them. So throughout the region, you know, I could talk more about the details, but I think people get the point. The point is that you have these pockets of the right-wing oligarchy who have been in permanent control, like in Colombia, in, in Ecuador, the right-wing oligarchy is in control. But even when the left can come to power, it's extremely difficult to govern because of the continued uh, oppression of U.S. imperialism, not only through military coups and meddling. That's easy to point out. What's more difficult to understand is the ways in which imperialism operates at an economic level in preventing these countries from being able to, to do what they want to do. It's almost as if uh, we live in a unipolar world where every single country's economy is directly linked to the imperial core, which no matter how much you try to distance yourself from politically, socially, or culturally, you will have to pay the piper uh, eventually. Uh, brilliantly put, which kind of moves us into the, the next topic of conversation, where we'll take a step in a more general discussion of the political economy. Uh, in all of our opinions, uh, your website's name, Multipolarista, is absolutely phenomenal. Major props, but uh, be careful because you never know we, we might steal it. It can kind of apply partially <laughs> to, to our podcast as well, which is uh, the deep program. But jokes aside, Side. Uh, could you tell uh, our audience why you chose that name, as well as uh, what the, what a multipolar world even is, and how it's different to the geopolitical setup of uh, power balance, more like power imbalance, if you know what I mean, that uh, that we have today? Yeah. Well, as I was just talking about in Latin America, it's a good example of the continuation of U.S. hegemony. Now, I wouldn't say the U.S is still the only unipolar power. I think we are seeing a shift, and I'll, and I'll talk about what unipolarity is and why I think we're sh it's shifting. I mean, as the name suggests, it's not, it's not very complicated. Unipolarity is a global system dominated by one power, and after the end of the first Cold War, and I say first Cold War, which ended in 1991, because the U.S. is waging a new Cold War, not only against Russia, obviously, but also against China, and I'll talk about that in a, in a bit it's related to multipolarity. But after the end of the first Cold War, the overthrow of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, and there were, of course, the series of U.S. regime change wars to overthrow any government in the global south that even had a kind of resource nationalist government, any government that wasn't completely neoliberal. It wasn't even necessarily socialist, but it didn't just have a complete neoliberal regime, and the U.S. would try to overthrow all of those regimes. I mean, Saddam Hussein in Iraq is a good example of that. Certainly not a socialist, but had significant state control of the economy, of the natural resources, of the oil. And obviously Libya is a good example. I mean, Libya had a kind of socialistic-oriented economy with state control of oil. Muammar Gaddafi had supported national liberation struggles around the world. He had a very strong welfare state. And the U.S. made sure to destroy all of these countries and replace them with, if it couldn't replace them with a neoliberal regime, the alternative is a failed state. Because at least then, if it's a failed state, all you need is a bunch of mercenaries to protect the oil fields and you can just extract all of the natural resources, which is exactly what happened in Libya. NATO destroyed it in 2011 
And then French and British companies came in and started taking over Libyan oil. And all they have to do is to have like these little enclaves guarded by, you know, PMCs, private military companies, and they can just extract those resources. So that, that was U.S. unipolarity. And what's happened in the past 10 years, really, I would, I would go back really 10 years because the war in Libya, I think, is, was, a, was a watershed moment because in 2011, this is before uh, Xi Jinping was, was pri president in China, and this is before Putin had become president again in Russia. At that, time, at that point, it was Medvedev. Medvedev. And in 2011, at the UN Security Council, Russia under Medvedev and China, um, they did not veto the no-fly zone in Libya, which is what gave NATO the fig leaf of legitimacy to wage the regime change war to destroy the Libyan state. And that was a really eye-opening moment for both Russia and China. Xi Jinping comes in in 2013. Putin comes back as president in Russia, partially because of that disaster and in Libya. And, and then, of course, we have 2014, which is another massive watershed moment, which is the U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine, led by far-right elements. I mean, this is an objective historical fact. We have this leaked recording of the top U.S. diplomat, Victoria Nuland, in which she, she handpicks who the prime minister of Ukraine would be after the coup, and it's um, Yatsenyuk. She calls him Yats, and she says, Yats is our guy. Artsenya Yatsenyuk was this complete neoliberal Western-backed puppet. He became prime minister. And then, of course, you had the billionaire oligarch Petro Poroshenko. So in response to that, Russia annexes Crimea. There's a democratic referendum, and the majority of people in Crimea vote to become part of the, Ru the Russian Federation. And then the U.S. and European Union start imposing sanctions on Russia. So I think those two events followed by the war in Syria and Russia's intervention in the war in Syria to prevent state collapse. Those are the, were the beginning of the rise of this multipolar order and the decline of U.S. unipolarity. Because in the 1990s, the U.S. waged all of these wars, the Gulf War, the wars that destroyed Yugoslavia. I mean, the U.S. bombed, NATO bombed China's embassy and China couldn't do anything. By accident. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then, of course, in the, there were the, the two Chechen wars. And in the second Chechen war, the U.S. obviously was supporting these Chechen extremists who were trying to have independence. And all these neocons in Washington had like these think tanks supporting the Chechens, including, by the way, John Bolton. So, I mean, Russia wasn't able to, to Russia was barely existing as a state. It was completely colonized by the West in the 1990s. Boris Yeltsin was an alcoholic U.S. puppet. And and Russia was able to get back on its feet. And then China began increasingly, as it developed its economy and developed the productive forces, it began exerting, a more, um, exerting more pressure and, and pushing a more independent foreign policy. And especially with the rise of Xi Jinping, the, Chinese Con the Communist Party of China tur turns back toward the left. It has a more anti-imperialist foreign policy. And really, since those events, U.S. unipolarity has checks. It's no longer just the U.S. doing anything that it wants around the world. In Syria, the U.S. couldn't collapse the state 
because of Russia, but also because of Iran, also because of the Lebanese resistance led by Hezbollah. So, and also because of the of Iraq, which is another interesting example, the role of the Iraqi PMFs, the private military forces that are a part of the Iraq, Iraqi state as well, that played a key role in defeating these Western-backed Salafi jihadi contras. So those are all moments that represent a decline in that U.S. unipolarity. So I, I think that, you know, we've seen this rise of this kind of multipolar order, but the U.S., in, a, in, a, in an attempt to try to prevent the rise of any other power as Brzezinski, the former U.S. national security advisor and imperial strategist, as he put in 1997 in his book, The Grand Chessboard, he said the U.S. must do anything it can to prevent the rise of a near-peer strategic competitor in Eurasia. And now there are not just one, there are two, the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation and their allies. So the U.S. responds to that to prevent the rise of a multipolar order that could prevent U.S. unipolarity from ever coming back. It has declared a new Cold War. And on both China and Russia at the same time. So in many ways, instead of the U.S. is trying to prevent the emergence of a multipolar world and basically create a bipolar world like it was during the first Cold War in which you have the U.S.-led imperialist axis. And then now you have this axis, which is a little more complicated because it's not necessarily socialist-led like it was in the Soviet Union. But you could say it's a... A, a it's a kind of global south axis led by china and also russia that is trying to basically just defend basic idea principles of national sovereignty and control over their own resources against us the us empire's attempt to reimpose unipolarity but okay so i am like a random american sitting in wisconsin or whatever uh, and what's going through my mind is why is a unipolar world deadly not only for developing nations but for the building of socialism in general? Many people are going to think immediately, okay, this is only going to be good for the Russians or the Chinese because they're going to raise their power level as if politics was a game of Pokemon. Uh, but it's not really <laughs> going to influence me over here in Colombia or over here in Ghana or over here in Bulgaria Bulgaria or Poland, right? Great question. Yeah, well, I will, I, will, I will concede that one of the critiques, including a Marxist critique of the idea of multipolarity, is, is the point, which is true, which is that before World War I, it was a multipolar world. But I, I would often, I would point out a few different distinctions. One, multipolarity of colonialist powers is not the same thing as multipolarity of, multi of countries, including a major socialist bloc, which is China and its allies. China represents a fundamental distinction, whereas in the lead up to World War I, there were no socialist governments. The first socialist government was the Soviet Union, and that was 1917, right? So that's a fundamental difference. And also, it was a multipolarity of colonial powers fighting among each other, whereas a different kind of multipolarity would be a multipolarity of countries that are formerly colonized co countries that are just trying to defend their sovereignty, which is a country like China or Vietnam. I mean, these are countries that they're not imperialist powers. And so why is unipolarity bad? Because exactly as I said earlier, U.S. unipolarity has been inextricably tied to the defense of capitalism as a global system and imposing capitalism and, and specifically neoliberalism 
around the world. Neoliberalism, neoliberalism reflects the phase of capitalism in which U.S. unipolarity dominated the global capitalist system. If you think about when neoliberalism arose, it arose with the fundamental crisis within the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc more generally, with the rise of inflation, the decline of uh, GDP decline, and then eventually in the 1980s, the series of color revolutions and overthrow of these socialist governments in the Eastern Bloc. So neoliberalism rises when socialism is at its weakest point, and then neoliberalism triumphs over the world in the 1990s when socialism in most of the world, excluding you know Cuba, the DPRK, and a few noble exceptions, socialism has been eradicated. Well, China, which is at this point going through a very complex process where you know, it had to take a few steps back in order to take a step forward, developing its productive forces to prevent counter-revolution. So anyway, the point is that neoliberalism reigns supreme at the moment of U.S. unipolar hegemony because unipolarity is about preventing the rise of socialist alternatives to capitalist hegemony. Because we have to understand that capitalism is imperialism. Imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, and unipolarity is the highest stage of imperialism, right? And that's why the capitalist class is desperate to reimpose U.S. unipolarity. One, they want to break up the Russian Federation, so they want to resubordinate it like it was in the 1990s, so they can privatize all of the state-owned companies like Gazprom, like they did in the 1990s, so Western capital can take over and exploit Russia's natural resources. And of course, they want to do exactly the same in China, where five of the biggest banks in the world are state-owned Chinese banks. They want to privatize all of those banks. They want to privatize all of the natural resources and get access to that. That's why unipolarity is inextricably linked to capitalism and multipolarity Yes, there is a Marxist critique that says multipolarity doesn't necessarily mean socialism. That is true. You can have, like in, in the lead to World War I, you can have a multipolarity of different capitalist powers. But we are also seeing instead a multipolarity in which there is a socialist bloc led by the People's Republic of China. And obviously Russia is certainly not socialist, but there are other socialist governments. I mentioned you know, China, but obviously Vietnam... Uh, Laos, uh, um, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, they're also all part of an alliance. So the point is that that is a fundamental distinction from the multipolarity of the World War I era, and that is why Wall Street is trying to reimpose unipolar domination, because multipolarity provides space for socialist movements to take state power. If, when under U.S. unipolarity, we saw what happened when socialists took power. The CIA coup in Chile that overthrew the elected socialist president Salvador Allende. The genocidal war on Vietnam. I mean, those are examples of what happens when this, you have this U.S. unipolarity, whereas when you do have elements of bi bipolarity or multipolarity, it still it provides some breathing room for socialist governments to take power. 
not not only this, but I'd like to also add a little point to 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 that excellent uh, uh, like point that you just delivered. Uh, it's that with the existence of a multipolar world, at least in the image of the twentieth century, uh, with the Soviet Union, for example, um, the amount of illegal aggression that was avoided um, from the side of the the United States because of the existence of the Soviet Union. I mean, several examples uh, across the board, uh, from the Cuban example to others, but uh, more importantly the perfect, I guess, symbol is in the waning days of the Soviet Union. My own country, Iraq, was uh, a, a, a victim of illegal American aggression. And the United States specifically went and asked to get the okay from the Soviet Union in, in the late 90s, uh, in the late 80s, excuse me, in, in 1990, 1991, um, to get the okay from the Soviet Union that, hey, if we go and we invade uh, Iraq, you're, we're not gonna, like, we're not gonna, there's not gonna be bad blood between, <laughs> you know, between us. Uh, you're not gonna get in the way. And, of course, Gorbachev, the piece of shit, he gave his okay. Um, also, like, uh, an, an, an interesting, I think, side note is you, you see this um, liberal current, I would call it, uh, because we're primarily, to, we deliver to, to a, a leftist audience for the most part. Uh, but there's a liberal uh, current, uh, particularly in the United States, but just generally over the West, which has this, uh, I, I would say, like, um, irrational fear of multipolarity, specifically of Chinese multipolarity, the very fact that there is this rising Eastern Oriental power or whatever other uh, racist, racist epithets you, you'd want to use to describe them. Um, and, and my point, or like my question is, what would you say, where do you think this, this comes from? And what are the consequences of these people who come with this particular perspective of, you know, hey, we may be bad, but as, uh, at least, you know, um, there is at least some semblance of, of uh, democracy, of freedom, of uh, rule of law. <laughs> <laughs> whatever that's supposed to mean when it comes to the United States, etc., etc., as compared to all those evil Chinese, uh, for example. Well, obviously, there's a huge element of racism, and we can't ignore that factor. Going back to the yellow peril and all of this nonsense, I mean, the anti-Chinese racism in the U.S. that's coming back is not new. It's it, Go back to the Chinese Exclusion Act. I mean, there's a history of that, and it's partially related to the colonial subjugation of China. For a hundred years, China was subordinated by colonial powers. Mao's analysis in 1949, well, before 1949, before the revolution triumphed in 49, was that China is partially colonial, partially feudal, and partially capitalist. And there were multiple European powers controlling parts of China. Obviously, Hong Kong is a good example of that. But anyway, the point is that there's also, so there's that racism element. But there's also the fact that China has a socialist government led by a communist party. Now, I, as someone, I think China is a very progressive power. It has a socialist government and it's moving, especially in the past few years, toward the left. But I also think that it's fair. And I think we as socialists should acknowledge that China did have to make a lot of compromises and did and did and did carry out a lot of market reforms that did lead to inequality and bad labor conditions and all of this. But we have to understand that within the context of U.S. unipolarity. And I think it's so important to keep that in mind, that when the Communist Party of China was retreating, was in the 1980s, 90s, and first decade of the 2000s, at this moment of U.S. unipolarity. And Deng Xiaoping's famous quote was to lie low and bide time to develop the productive forces and not to provoke imperialism because he saw what happened in the former Soviet Union. And he also saw what happened in 1989 with 
Tiananmen, which was a, a straight up color revolution. It was a coup attempt. The National Endowment for Democracy, which is a CIA cutout that has supported coups around the world, it just boasted this month, this May, excuse me, this June, on the anniversary of the Tiananmen coup attempt, the NED on its Twitter account boasted of supporting the leaders of the coup attempt in Tiananmen, which, by the way, was extremely violent. It wasn't peaceful protests. So, I mean, China understood that it would have to make a lot of compromises in order for the Communist Party to stay in power and slowly buy time developing the productive forces until it could get to a point where, one, U.S. imperialism was weakened, and two, it was strong enough to finally be able to stand on its own. And that's what we're seeing now in the past decade with the rise of Xi Jinping, who has moved back toward the left. He has imposed more control over capital. He has been disciplining the billionaires, taking away their wealth, disciplining large companies, breaking up large companies, talking about the importance of equality and not just fighting poverty because they've lifted 800 million people out of poverty. Now they have ended absolute poverty, extreme poverty. So their goal is to create more equality and what they call common prosperity. That The only reason that China can now do that is because of the weakening of U.S. unipolarity and this the space that multipolarity opens for socialist and progressive governments. Because in the unipolar era, the only way for a government basically to carry out some of these programs was to take a loan from the World Bank, right? And the IMF, which is just dominated by the U.S., which imposes neoliberal structural adjustment. So I think we really have to understand the rise of China also as being only allowed because of the weakening of U.S. imperialism and U.S. unipolarity. Because at the peak of U.S. unipolarity, the U.S. empire would not allow any socialist government to take power. And that it forced China to make those compromises in the short term so it could survive in the long term. And it worked so well. It worked so well. Even Sorry for interrupting you, but even that f- fucking iconic Hillary Clinton video where she says, uh, oh, we were thinking they're going <laughs> to become proper free market. We even let them join the different international institutions of so-called free capitalist societies, etc., etc. But they kind of fucked us up the ass because they are today a partially state-run economy. And her losing her mind in that one specific interview is just exactly a show of how strategically it was to an extent, depending on who you ask, but in my opinion, how it was a strategically necessary choice to make in a now unipolar world because they knew that unless they make said reforms, uh, they would go the same way the Soviet Union felt. Sorry for interrupting you. Please continue. Yeah, well, what's interesting is this, it's very similar to the old, the historic debate in the Soviet Union of socialism in one country. And what's interesting about that debate, there's a few things. One, first of all, you know, there's a lot of Trotskyites who talk about, you know, permanent revolution and all this stuff. And they always thought that, you know, they're just Western chauvinists who thought that you can't have socialism unless it happens in the imperial core. Obviously, that 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 aspect of orthodox Marxism was proven wrong. I mean, excluding Russia, which had an empire, although it was a very weak empire, every other socialist revolution has been in, in, the, in periphery in the global south. So I think that was one of the few things that the orthodox Marxists were wrong about in the 19th century. But that, that's, a, that's another point. But anyway, the point is that um, 
you know, first of all, the Soviet Union was not socialism in one country. There were 15 republics in the Soviet Union. And then you also throw in the, the Warsaw Pact countries in the Eastern Bloc. We're talking about 20-some countries with socialist governments. So it was not socialism in one country, but they created a system that allowed their economic model to work within that economic bloc. But, you know, when you're a country under siege, I mean, people, there's so much racist, um, there's so many racist stereotypes about the DPRK, but one of the reasons that its developmental model has been like that is because it's been under siege since the 1950s, basically. So, I mean, a lot of people in the world, you know, all, all due respect to the Korean people who have bravely resisted imperialism, but, you know, it's very difficult, and a lot of people don't want to recreate that model because they see how difficult it is. That's what socialism under siege is like. So you have to be able to have a multipolar world or at least a bipolar world in order to develop the opportunities to have socialism not under siege. And, and that's why the non-aligned movement was only possible because of the existence of another pole, which was the Soviet-led socialist pole. The, the non-aligned movement, it's called non-aligned because they not aligned between the U.S. led uh, U.S. led pole and the Soviet led pole, so that was an attempt at a kind of multipolarity that wouldn't have been possible under U.S. unipolarity, obviously. Of course, now I could just add one more thing to that. Um, the the beauty of that aspect, particularly of a, a multipolarity in, of which one of uh, the 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 poles, let's say, was a socialist power, is the fact that if you were um, a revolutionary group, uh, party, whatever, what have you, um, you could stand to receive diplomatic support, uh, military support, support. funding, <laughs> even. Exactly, even 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 in the capacity of arms, if you so needed it. That is an example of almost every Latin American and African um, revolutionary and movement. Asian. Not one did not receive at least diplomatic um, recognition, if not outright uh, funding, uh, from either China or, or the Soviet Union. Um, this, is, of course, waned a bit in the 21st century, particularly with China's current uh, non-interference policy. Uh, but who knows, that might stand to change over the next couple of decades. But also, that's a, a nice aspect of, of uh, unipolarity. You can play, uh, in a perfect example, for example, Yugoslavia, uh, you can play the two different poles, the two uh, great powers, or more uh, great powers, against each other for your own benefit, so that you can get the most that you can possibly can, with the perfect example, uh, of course, being... Um, yeah. uh, yeah, exactly, Tito and and Yugopnik's favorite example of the uh, uh, of the uh, space program, the Yugoslav space program. <laughs> so um, that's uh, the the and another very interesting aspect of multipolarity. And of course, again, um, this is a point that I think is missed with a lot of Western people, particularly Western leftists, because they have never experienced it firsthand. But multipolarity, for the most part, is a great barrier against war and wars of aggression, in particular. And this is uh, something we really need to emphasize because. If you are caught in the middle between these two powers, for the most part, you're not going to be subjected to the same levels of aggression that you would otherwise. Because, for example, even at the UN, if there are uh, um, directives of, or, or resolutions to be to be uh, voted on, then there would be one block that supports one side, another block that would support another side. There would be a possibility for vetoing military action in certain uh, at certain levels. Um, so from every point, either from you being an organization and getting uh, support, to uh, the highest levels of a quote-unquote human organization, that being the UN, supposedly, by the way, um, there is 
room to wiggle, to maneuver. Unlike now where, you know, well, not, not so much now, but for example, 20 years ago, if it wasn't the State Department line, it's a bullet you're getting. So that's an incredibly important point to, to, to re-emphasize as well. Um, and that's, of course, keeping in mind that there is a Marxist critique of multipolarity, as uh, Ben so beautifully put. Yeah, and, and I should add, you know, you, you raised such a key point that, look, the brave resistance movements across uh, the colonized countries for centuries deserve infinite credit, obviously. I mean, everyone here, we support all of those struggles, but it's not a coincidence that decolonization was not successful until the rise of a new socialist pole. Let's, not, let's keep in mind, I mean... British colonialism in the Indian subcontinent went on for almost 200 years. It wasn't until after World War II with the fundamental crisis in the Western imperialist powers and the rise of the socialist pole led by the Soviet Union. In 1947, you had decolonization in the Indian subcontinent. And then, of course, following that, you had the, the, the Chinese Revolution. And let's not forget the role of of, uh, I mean, the Soviet policy toward the Chinese Revolution is complicated, but China received a lot of support from the Soviet Union before the Sino-Soviet split. Then you have the Korean Revolution, which also was supported by the Soviet Union and China. And then you have the Vietnamese Revolution, supported by the Soviet Union and China. And then you have the Algerian Revolution in Zimbabwe and Angola, all across the global south, in Nicaragua, Cuba. I mean, all of those revolutions received support from the Soviet Union or China. So, I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm not in any way discounting the importance of the local struggle. I'm not denying agency or whatever, but let's be real. Without that external support, those revolutions probably would not have succeeded because people were resisting for hundreds of years against European colonialism, and they were not able to succeed until they had that external support. Haiti is an exception. I should mention the, no, the noble exception of yeah. Haiti, but Haiti has been punished ever since for having successful revolution. Mm, yeah. Not the day goes by without them trying to remind them that, hey, you revolted, you killed a bunch of slavers, so now, um, yeah. My God. You, Nick, you had something to say. Because no, what, what Ben talked about leads us very much, very well into kind of the semi-last or one of the last points that we uh, want to talk about here. So in order to properly address it, let's go back to South America one more time. Uh, the relatively recent successful overthrow of the overthrowers in Bolivia was uh, marked by all stripes of uh, socialists all over the world as a great success. No denying that. But the question is, why was it a success and what can we learn from it? Uh, what do I mean by this? So a lot of our comrades are particularly Western-centric. Uh, so no matter how much they try not to be, uh, they end up explaining away the counter-insurgency success story as a simple show of how the U.S. foreign policy apparatus is slowly fall, fall, failing to live up to its uh, Cold War glory days. Uh, in my opinion, that 
that's true, but almost completely ignores the you know incredibly powerful working class resistance movement that Bolivia managed to muster against uh, local reactionary traders. Uh, but what what do you think? You kind of touched a bit on it when talking about the local agency and so on. What do you think? Is is South America waking up in some sort of glorious left wing fervor, uh, or are they just getting in a few lucky shots in because the CIA ain't what it used to be, or is it a combination, a sweet sweet optimistic combination? Please say it's the a combination one. of yes, <laughs> all of those things and more. I mean, in the case of Bolivia, we have to understand its particular material conditions, its, its particular historical context. The idea, this sock dem nonsense, the idea that Bolivia defeated the U.S.-backed far-right coup regime at the ballot box is too simplistic. Yes, that was part of it, but we should keep in mind that there were massive mobilizations, especially by the organized working class in Bolivia, which is extremely well organized. There are large labor unions and there are entire trade union federations that paralyzed the country three times. So what happened? I mean, I, I've been to Bolivia. I was there under the coup regime toward the end in, during the 2020 election, and it was terrifying. I, I was personally threatened by name by the fascist interior minister, Arturo Murillo, who is now fortunately in prison. So anyway, so what happened in November 2019, there was the coup backed by the U.S. and the OAS against Evo Morales, the elected president. And there was the rise of this unelected so-called interim president, this dictator, Janina Añez. And what happened is the, the regime had the support of the military and the police because Evo Morales came from a peasant background from organizing among the coca farmers in Cochabamba, which is the indigenous majority region, which is very agricultural. And in the big cities, the military and police, which are not indigenous largely, they have like a lot of racist views there was a lot of racism against the indigenous people and Evo was never able to get really control within the state security services. So they were very easy to bribe and the, the regime, the coup regime and the U S got the uh, police and the military's loyalty, which meant that they could beat the population into submission. But what happened is that the working class is majority indigenous and supports the, the movement towards socialism party of Evo Morales, and it's extremely well organized. So they had three massive strikes, and on, during each strike, they paralyzed the country and prevented the government from operating in any way, just shut down the economy. And after the first two, the government, the regime, regime claimed that it was going to have an election, and it kept delaying the election, and it was using COVID as an excuse to delay and delay and delay. And after the third time they paralyzed the country, they also threatened to, to take up arms. And there were, there were guerrilla indigenous groups that said, if you don't hold an election, we are going to take up arms. And then the coup regime was so unstable. There was an economic crisis. This is toward, you know, this is um, the end of 2020. So this is like when vaxes are rolling out and people are able to open up the economy a bit more. And and the economy was in a fundamental crisis. So they were forced to have an election because if they didn't have an election, they would, the, the organized labor movement and the armed indigenous groups would have overthrown the coup regime. So it's not, they didn't just defeat it simply through voting. 
voting was part of it, but it was part of a complex political process. So we, it's not just bourgeois democracy saving the day. We have to understand Bolivia in the context of this massive, vibrant labor movement related to the indigenous communities, which are organized around the movement towards socialism party of Evo Morales. And that is a unique thing in Latin America. In, in different countries in Latin America, they have very unique histories. Venezuela has its very unique history of the revolutionary movement. Nicaragua, the Sandinistas, there are, those countries have very strong, and Cuba, of course, very strong lefts. Now, in other countries, it's more complicated. In Argentina, it basically just goes every few years. It alternates between like uh, progressive social democrats and then right-wing neoliberals. And in Chile, it's a very similar thing. And in Mexico, it's kind of more complicated. But the, the countries in the region have their own unique histories. But the, the heart of the revolutionary movements in the region are Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Bolivia, which are also part of the Bolivarian Alliance. That is the heart of the revolutionary forces in Latin America. Why do you think the U.S. didn't... Uh go full mental the way they did historically in Latin America when it comes to the overthrow of the overthrowers uh, in Bolivia? Was there just too much power to fight? Was it not worth it financially? Uh, did they think that it's a lost battle so they abandoned their uh, right-wing buddies, uh, which did the coup? Mm. Or <laughs> could, could you also comment on how the CIA has been getting really sloppy recently? Like, just everything from, like, what happened in Ukraine to what happened in Bolivia, just their work compared to what they did in the 50s is really a, you know, I mean, if I was American, I'd be I'd be wondering where my tax dollars are going. <laughs> well, to, I, know, I mean, people do like to joke about that, but honestly, I don't think it's that the CIA is sloppier. I think it's that the material conditions have changed to such a degree that the U.S. can't do what it did before. Hmm, okay. you, can, yeah. you can only do yeah. it so many times. People aren't dumb, especially in Latin America. People know this history. And in the case of Bolivia... I mean, they did a coup in 2019. How are they going to do another one? I mean, they had plans to assassinate Luis Arce, the president now who won the election. We have reports from this. We have leaked information. There were U.S. government plans backed by the U.S. to, to use these mercenaries. But you have to think about the amount of capital that you need to, to launch a coup, especially in a country like Bolivia, where it was against the majority of the population. It was only like certain elites within the military and police. And then they, a lot of those people fled. They fled when the, the socialists came back to power. And then the movement towards socialism party, they like reformed the military and like changed the command of the military. So, I mean, it's, it's easier said than done, right? You can only do how many, however many coups in the span of a few years. In Venezuela, they've tried coups non nonstop since Hugo <laughs> Chavez died in 2013. And going back to 2002, they had a briefly successful coup. I mean, it's not that they're sloppy necessarily. It's that the people are better organized and they've studied that history. And also that the, the conditions have changed. And these societies are not as tightly controlled by these military elites like they were in the 1960s and 70s. And, of course, they also have the support of China and Russia. I should say that in, in Venezuela, the organized socialist movement is very powerful. And, of course, I'm not in any way downplaying how important that is in defending the revolution. But being realistic, if it were not specifically for Russia's military support, 
Trump had repeatedly talked. We now know from Mark Esper, who is the U.S. Defense Secretary and also former vice president of Raytheon, the weapons corporation. Mark Esper said in his in his book, his memoir, that Donald Trump on two occasions wanted to invade Venezuela. But one of the reasons they were not able to was because Russia had made military signs. Russia sent war planes to um, to Venezuela and Russia deployed troops to Venezuela in 2019, which was clearly a sign to the U.S. saying, if you even think about invading, we will militarily intervene on behalf of Venezuela. So there's also that changed factor, whereas obviously in the 1990s, Russia would never for a millisecond even think about something like that. Yeah, for sure. And that's, I think, also another, again, again, another merit um, of, of uh, multipolarity. Of course, for the people, uh, the, the liberals in the fucking walls uh, that are listening, <laughs> this is not, <laughs> that's, that's not to say that there aren't, you know, downsides to uh, multipolarity, there isn't a, that there isn't a Marxist critique of it. But at the end of the day, you know, we've been living with unipolarity for like four decades almost now. Um, the change of pace is at least somewhat pleasant, right? <laughs> You opening, I think you had a, a final point that you wanna you wanna wrap us up with. I wanted to try and end it on a kind of optimistic thing. So let's use China as an example. Is it going to take another I don't know hundred or hundred and fifty years for the death of unipolarity, or do you think? And obviously that's what you're leaning towards after this entire conversation. But still, let's see some details. Do you think we'll be seeing? major change in our own lifetimes. I think we're already seeing that change now. And it's going to be a protracted process, obviously. U.S. imperialism is not going to disappear. It's going to be in decline, but empires often decline for decades or centuries. And let's not forget that empires often commit their worst crimes at the moment of decline. Let's not forget the Ottoman genocide against Armenians and Greeks and Assyrians. Let's not forget the German Empire's decline in the Third Reich. There's so many examples throughout history. So the U.S. definitely could, I mean, it's going to become more, more and more fascistic, I think, the U.S. government. So it's going to be very difficult, and I, I'm very worried about the possibility of nuclear war. I mean, the U.S. is the only country that has ever used nuclear weapons on a civilian population, not once, but twice, and they're threatening to do it again. So... I do think that people in Washington recognize there's this fundamental crisis economically within the U.S. economy because it's all based on smoke and mirrors and, and companies buying back their stock and gambling on cryptocurrencies and all this. I mean, it's like everything is financialized. There's no production. It's, it's all been outsourced. So there's a fundamental economic crisis, but also there's a massive political crisis so I think that the U.S. is going to be going, going through a significant crisis. I think, you know, as fascistic as the U.S. is now, it's going to become even more explicitly fascistic, more explicitly authoritarian. There could even be a kind of military dictatorship. And that would be their, their way of trying to defend, of trying to save U.S. unipolarity from terminal decline. So it's hard to say what will happen. I mean... Uh, unfortunately, I mean, it's it's not set in stone. There is a possibility that a fascist U.S. regime could wage a war in China and win. I mean, who knows? But I do think that if that catastrophic kind of outcome can be avoided, if we look at it from a kind of objective perspective from the long term, it's very clear around the world. Everyone can see that the U.S. and also the EU, I mean, which is basically an imperialist extension of the U.S. at this point, 
these countries are in significant decline and not just China, but also in general, Asia is significantly on the rise. So in the long term, if we can avoid nuclear war, then I think that, yeah, multipolarity is here to stay. But that's why I think it's important to, as for, you know, anti-war activists and anti-imperialists and all of us, all of us in journalism and protest and organizing and all of that, because what we have to do is prevent another world war, because that would be just as German imperialism waged a war to try to save its empire and British imperialism saved a war to tr uh, waged world help, helped create World War One to try to save its empire as well. I mean, I think it's very clear that the U.S. empire is more than willing to start a, a new world war, as we see now with the proxy war in Ukraine. And it's our responsibility to prevent that from happening. Because obviously we can't have socialism if there's a nuclear apocalypse. Or can we? <laughs> uh, go ask the Pesedists. <laughs> and put some dolphins in, exactly. and maybe that's the actual future. Exactly. Uh, there's there's just one uh, thing also that I would like to add on that is is the the very last point you said, which is um about uh, socialism is won't be uh, possible without, uh, for example, um, or at least pre preventing war is a big uh, aspect of it. And I think um, that is a greatly neglected segment of current, um, uh, particularly Western leftist uh, discourse um, that I think it withered away after the 50s and 60s uh, or mostly 60s. Um, the f fundamental principle that when you're a member of the left, particularly in a Western um, imperialist country, your number one priority should be to limit the um, imperialist and particularly military activities. Because one thing is, of course, economic, you know, sanctioning and whatnot. This is, you know, but another thing is directly bombing like power plants and, and infrastructure and, and stuff like that, which the United States is very fond of doing. Um, or at least supporting its quote-unquote allies, like, for example, the uh, strikes on uh, Sudani uh, pharmaceutical plants um, for, like, almost five decades ago now. Um, this sort of thing is is fundamentally far more damaging to both aspiring uh, socialist movements as well as fledging uh, socialist movements that have conquered power bar still building themselves up. Um, the fundamental, I think, um, uh, pressure against imperialist activity, particularly military activity of an imperialist country, should come within their own population, and particularly the leftist segment of that population. Um, and I think the, the greatest, I think, tragedy of this is the anti-war segment, particularly of all chapters uh, of, of leftist uh, groupings in the United States, particularly like the, the ones that are Democrats adjacent, DSA and whatnot. Um, the, 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 this particular aspect of being anti-war has been more or less neglected. Um, of course, they are, you know, in word, they're anti-war, but I mean, uh, concrete uh, protests and, and things that would actually uh, impact the nation uh, on, on the level of, for example, the anti-war Vietnamese protests, this has kind of ceased to exist. Even with the Iraq war, there was barely there was a big movement that fizzled out very quickly and had basically no influence on the American aggression on my country, for the most part, for the most part. With a perfect agreement and a splash of <laughs> optimism, we wrap up uh, today's, in my opinion, extremely informative, awesome episode. Uh, ben, uh, please take this moment to plug whatever you're currently doing, whatever website, etc., etc., all the links of everything that you mentioned and more will be available in the description of on whichever platform you're listening or uh, watching this from. So, Ben, please take it away. 
Thank you. No, it's it's been a pleasure being here. It, your show is awesome, so it's good to meet you, comrades, and and hang out at least digitally. If people want to check out my work, they can go to multipolarista.com, and if they want to support my my work, and I have a podcast as that's also it's, it's the Multipolarista podcast, and videos on YouTube and stuff, and Rumble and uh, Rockfin and Odyssey. They can just look up Multipolarista, and I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Multipolarista. It should be pretty easy to find. And then, of course, they can just find me on Twitter at Benjamin Norton. So thanks. Yeah, it, was, it was fun. Hopefully we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, for sure. We'd love that. This has been The Deep Program. I'm Yugopnik. I'm Hakeem. I'm JT, and I didn't contribute anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Sorry, You're still JT. I'm Ben Norton. <laughs> All good. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And we'll see you guys bye next bye. time. <laughs> this is the shit show. <laughs> <So> Fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, bye bye.